Okay, here we go again. This is chapter four of Max Lucado's You Were Made for This Moment. Act two, crisis. Courage in a hostile land. Mordecai's morning began with no agenda. He washed his face and had his breakfast of figs and pomegranates. He selected a robe from an assortment he had gathered over the years and left his house for the brief walk to the city gates. The sun was warm, the merchants were busy, dogs barked, children played, he patted the rump of a donkey. He grabbed a handful of nuts from the basket of a vendor and tossed him a coin. He greeted associates and acknowledged the arrival of dignitaries. They came every day. All wanted an audience with Xerxes to gain his blessing, money, favor, alliance. Mordecai and others made sure they were welcomed and vetted. As Mordecai neared the archway, he heard his name, Mordecai! He turned to see Hegai, the head of the harem. You're out early, old friend, Mordecai replied. Is someone giving you any, giving away free food? <laughs> he expected a smile. None appeared, just a breathless report. He's coming out any minute. You don't want to be near when he passes. Mordecai looked at Hegai and nodded. Haman was to be avoided at all costs. Ever since the king had named him vice-regent, the citadel had been on edge. Haman snarled at all he saw. He barked orders and demanded obedience. The king required that everyone bow to Haman's presence. But Mordecai and Haggai knew that the order was not the king's idea. The two men scurried to the shadows. Thus far, they had managed to avoid the thug and his entourage, but not this time. Prepare the way for the king's man, shouted a soldier. All must stop and pay homage. Haggai cursed under his breath. We're getting too old. Next time we will run faster. He lowered himself to the ground and turned to whisper to his friend, but Mordecai had not knelt. Haggai cut his eyes toward the gate. The large doors were open. The horses and riders were in sight. Haman was only seconds from appearing, and Mordecai? He was still standing. Mordecai, Haggai whispered, down. Mordecai ignored him. His eyes filled with anger and resolve. The sight of Haman had triggered a suppressed rage. You, demanded a soldier, kneel before the king's man. Mordecai stared. Haman stopped, and the eyes of the two men met. Chapter 4. He refused to bow. On February 2015, the terrorist group ISIS beheaded 21 Christians on a beach in Libya. In a video, the men are seen moments before their execution, calling out to Jesus and mouthing prayers. Most of them were Egyptian migrant laborers working to provide for their families. ISIS slaughtered the men in order to shock the world with terror. The response of their family sent an altogether different message. One mother of a 25-year-old victim said, I am proud of my son. He did not change his faith till the last moment of death. I thank God he is taking care of him. A priest described his congregation, which lost 13 of its men, by saying, The whole congregation was coming to the church to pray for their return. But in their prayers later on, they asked if they died. They died for their faith, and that's what happened. The congregation is actually growing psychologically and spiritually. The men could have lived. With a simple confession of Allah, knives would have been lowered and lives spared. What would you have done? The question is more than academic. You may not face blades and terrorists, but don't you face critics and accusers? Family members mock your beliefs. Professors make fun of your faith. Colleagues gossip about your convictions. Do you sometimes feel all alone? Mordecai did. As many as five years have passed since Esther was appointed queen, Esther 2, 16-17 and 3-7, life has been good to her and Mordecai. She lives in a lap of luxury. She, ser- she serves in a seat of power. Both continue to keep their Jewish nationality a secret. As far as anyone knows, they are pure Persian. All is good until Mordecai overhears a plot. 
In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king, Second, 2, 21-23. The Persian vision, the Persian versions of John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald schemed to assassinate King Xerxes, but their big mouths got them in trouble. Mordecai caught wind of the plot, reported them to Esther, and they ended up they ended up on the king's gallows. And that's it. No more details. No public recognition for Mordecai. No more character development. No explanation. My editors would red ink me. Why include this story? Who are these people? What happened next? A possible answer is found in the first verse of the next chapter. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Xerxes found himself exposed again. His first wife had resisted him, and now his subjects were plotting to kill him. He presumed to be lord over the world's greatest empire, and yet was threatened from within his own camp. A statement must be made. He responded by appointing a heavy-handed, take-no-prisoners vizar, Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agadite. Don't hurry past the odd-sounding terms in this introduction. Haman was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And Agagite was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the most ancient of the Hebrews' enemies. The children of Israel were hardly out of the Egyptian bondage when Amalek king Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Why would a warring tribe turn their wrath against some ex-slaves? Moses and his people owned no land. They possessed no territory. They had done nothing to anger the Amalekites. Why the guerrilla warfare on the Hebrew people? And why such cruelty? Moses recalled their barbarism when he urged the Israelites to remember what the Amalekites did to, did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and attacked you, who were, attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. You should blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget Deuteronomy 25, 17-19. The Amalekites picked off the stragglers, the old, the sick, the widowed, and disabled. They had not the courage to attack from the front. Moses saw the evil people who, for who they were, instruments of Satan. Lucifer hated the Jews. He knew God's plan was to redeem the world through Jesus, and he made it his aim to annihilate the family tree before it could bear fruit. After defeating the Amalekites in the wilderness, God promised, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God went so far as to command King Saul to destroy all the Amalekites along with all their animals. But Saul spared the king and saved the rest, the best of their sheep. The name of the king, Agag. Haman then was a descendant of the original anti-Semitic race. Hebrew hatred was in his blood. Mordecai, in turn, was a descendant of Saul, a Benjaminite. Saul's refusal to obey God and destroy Agag was a perpetual blemish on the Benjamite legacy. The moment Mordecai encountered Haman and Susa was more than a two men meeting at was more than two men meeting at the citadel. This was a collision of ten centuries of bias and hatred. Haman and his hate made for high drama when he saw Mordecai at the gate. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor.
Someone needs to capture this moment on canvas. The towering gate in the background, haughty Haman and his entourage of servants, Persian officials with faces low to the ground, and in their midst, one man standing ramrod straight, Mordecai, backbone as stiff as a frigate mast. This was the moment Mordecai refused to bow. His resistance went on day after day. His fellow court members spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them. Finally, they got an explanation. Mordecai told them that he was a Jew. Well, there it is. The camouflage came off. The mask was removed. Mordecai had spent his life hiding his nationality and trained Esther to do the same. The two were so Persian in tone, appearance, language, and behavior that she could marry the king. He could work for the king, and no one knew that they were descendants of Abraham. But one look at Haman changed that. Mordecai wasn't about to bow before the enemy of God's people. Haman went ballistic. Place Esther 3, 5 through 6 against your nose. Take a whiff and see if you don't detect the stench of Satan. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. It wasn't enough to make Mordecai miserable. It wasn't enough to kill the unbending Jew. Haman embarked on a mission to annihilate God's chosen people, root and branch. This was bald-faced racism. Haman felt superior to an entire race of human beings simply because of his ancestry. And as if he had the right to gamble with the lives of humans, Haman took the equivalent of a die called a pure and cast a lot and decided the date of execution to be 11 months hence. He then went to the Palatinate and said, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administration for the royal treasury. <laughs> Haman was willing to pay 20 million for the right to exterminate the Jews. By now, we know that Haman was vile to the bone, and Xerxes had the spine of a jellyfish. But nothing could prepare us for the nonchalant decision to engage in ethnic cleansing. The king agreed, telling him, Keep the money, but go ahead and do as you like with these people, whatever you think best. Two or three weeks, wait, through, two or three weeks later, Haman called in the king's secretaries and dictated letters to the governors and officials, officials throughout the empire to each province in its own languages and dialects. These letters were signed in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with his ring the edict went out by the king's speediest couriers then came then the king and haman sat down for a drinking spree as the city fell into confusion and panic the king and his right-hand man had such disregard for human life and disdain for the jewish jewish people that they could not pronounce they could pronounce a bloodbath and then enjoy cocktails Note, it wasn't just the Jews who were bewildered. The entire city was on edge. For all they knew, Haman might turn on them. What if he had a bias against shop owners or farmers or people who are left-handed? When the sheriff is a wimp and his deputy is a, de a despo, anything can happen. Haman dispatched couriers to each of the provinces with the command and an offer. The command? Kill all Jews. The offer? Plunder their possessions. The date dictated by the casting of the die was still 11 months away. Let them live in misery, Haman must have thought. What Haman did not know is this. People throw lots to make a decision, but the answer comes from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 Chance didn't determine the date. God did. Even though this story does not mention his name, it reveals his will. It was God who delayed the date for 11 months, giving his plan time to unfold. It was God who reminded Mordecai of his ancestry, his identity, and it was God who prompted him to take a stand for what is right. God will give you the courage to do the same. Can we talk honestly for a moment? You are weary, wounded, and worried. 
weary of their struggle, wounded from the battle, and worried that this winter will never cease. Like Mordecai and Esther, you feel far from home. Someone cut the ropes to the dock and set you adrift. Persia can be a cruddy place. No one disagrees with that. But Persia can also be the petri dish for bad decisions. So I urge you, don't make matters worse by bowing before Haman. Living as a person of faith in a faithless world requires courage and acts of resistance. You won't be told to kneel before a Persian tyrant. Odds are slim that you'll be persecuted by ISIS, but chances are high that you'll be tempted to compromise your beliefs or to remain silent in the face of injustice or evil. Mordecai moments are, moment, Mordecai moments are coming your way. Your college professor has a reputation for making fun of Christians. A few days be east, but a few days before Easter, he goes on a rant about the folly of the Christian faith. No one in his class really believes that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Raise your hand if you do. How will you respond? You've been aware from your, away from your family for a month. This overseas assignment is good for your career, but rough on your marriage. Phone chats with your husband are tense. He's distant. You are lonely. One of your coworkers is attractive, attentive, and available. He made that clear today at work. His text just made it clear again. Can I come over? What will you tell him? As you are enjoying a burger with your bowling buddies, one of them tells a joke that makes fun of African Americans. You've never thought your friends were racist, but they all had a good laugh at their disincentive story. Will you laugh with them? You are the newcomer to the salesman sales team. Job opportunities are scarce, and you don't want to mess this one up. The other members welcome you with a dinner invitation. You are surprised to hear them talk about the way they pad their expense accounts. We don't get caught, one explains, because we all agreed to do it. You'll agree as well, won't you? Everyone turns and waits for your reply. What will you say? Mordecai moments. Instances in which our true allegiance is revealed. Everyone else bows, but what about you? Mordecai had a few options. He could have said, I'll bow on the outside, but not on the inside. Or could he could have just justified going along in exchange for moving up. Or he could do what he did. He took a stand. Can I urge you to do the same? Resistance matters. Long after acts of compliance are forgotten, acts of courage are pondered. Consider the now famous photo of the man who refused to salute Hitler. No one captured the defiance of Mordecai on canvas, but the crossed arms of August Landmester? Study the black and white photo taken in 1936 Nazi rally in Hamburg, Germany, and you'll see him standing in a sea of Nazi loyalists. Hitler was present and at a to Christian a Navy vessel. Hundreds of arms were extended in his direction, everyone offering Sieg Heil. Except one, 26-year-old Landmesser was the lone German worker who refused to salute. He, was all, he wasn't always a dissident. He initially identified himself as a member of the Nazi party. For two years, he displayed no disloyalty, but then he met Irma Eckler in 1933. Their love story had one, one drawback. Eckler was Jewish. The party revoked his membership and denied him a marriage license. In late 1935, the couple had a child. By the time of 19... The 1936 photo was taken. Hitler's anti-Semitism was well known. Is it any wonder that Landmesser refused to salute? He had fallen in love with a Jewish woman, been refused right to marry her, and fathered a half-Jewish daughter. The couple tried to leave Germany for Denmark in 1937. He was detained at the border for dishonoring the race. Authorities told Landmesser to stop seeing Eckler, which he refused to do. Both were arrested in 1938. He was sent to a concentration camp. She went to prison, where she gave birth to their second daughter. They never saw each other again. She died in 1942. He was drafted from the, for the war in 1944, shortly after which he was declared missing in action. Was it worth it? 
The fact that we are discussing his story provides a partial answer. No one finds courage in the sight of the saluting crowd, but who isn't, who isn't inspired by the person who follows his or her convictions? Landmesser crossed his arms. The Egyptian Christians didn't bow, disavow their faith. Mordecai refused to bow. And you? Mordecai's refusal to bow was the first link in a chain of courageous acts that led to the salvation of his people. Your resolve might be the decisive gesture that breaks the stronghold. Decide now what you will do then. Don't wait until the heat of a moment. A crisis is no time to prepare an escape plan. Being in the arms of your date in a motel room is not the time or place to make up your mind about morality. The day of your final exams is not the time to decide your honesty. There is a reason the airline attendant points out the emergency exits before the plane leaves the ground. We don't think clearly during a free fall. The time to determine to resist temptation is before it strikes. Mordecai not only refused to bow, but he determined he would never bow under any circumstances. The verse is written in the future tense rather than the past. The future tense implies a resolve never to change his mind regardless of the reaction of Haman. Similarly, Job resolved, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustily at a young woman, Job 31.1. And Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself, Daniel 1.8. <clears throat> Make up your mind... Uh, now about what you will do then and remember stand up for god and he will stand with you a century and a half earlier three other hebrews refused to bow as well king nebuchadnezzar of babylon made an image of gold 90 feet tall and nine feet wide and commanded every citizen to bow before it daniel 3 1 then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and people of every language this is what you are commanded to do as soon as you hear the sound of the horn flute zither lyre harp pipe and all kinds of music you must fall down and worship the image of gold that king nebuchadnezzar has set up whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace that is an interesting church growth strategy come to worship or we'll toast you like a marshmallow everyone complied except three jews the king was given this report but there are some Jews whom you have set, set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. This stuff happens in exile. No matter how much wisdom and tact you have, how humble you are, how graciously you hold your convictions, and how many times you've refused to fight about something, there will come a time when your faith will be under fire. You'll be asked to do something that is wrong. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not waver. Nebuchadnezzar went ballistic and ordered that the furnace be heated to seven times its typical temperature. The heat was so intense that the soldiers who bound the Hebrews were consumed by the blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, with morbid fascination, positioned himself at the furnace entrance. He wanted to watch the Hebrew sizzle, yet he saw something else entirely. The, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and, t and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown in the f into the furnace? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Not only were there three men untouched by the flames, but there was also a fourth man who had divine had a divine appearance. Was this the Son of God? Certainly seems to be the case. Jesus stood with those who stood for him.
The Hebrew trio marched out of the fire with greater impact than when they entered. Nebuchadnezzar had no interest in their faith prior to the furnace, but then he saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. The attempts of the devil backfired. They then, they, they did then, they still do. Consider the story of the martyrs in Libya in 2015. There's some evidence that one of the men did not walk onto the beach as a Christian. Unlike the others, he was not from Egypt. He was a citizen of Ghana. It was not until he saw the faith of the men around him that he was moved to trust in Christ. When the time came to make a decision he and asked whether he would denounce Christianity, deliver, proclaim the gospel, or die, he said, their God is my God. Courage is contagious. My prayer is that your courage will inspire the same in others. That's the end of chapter 4.